Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss the Rolling Stones. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing.
podcast yet is because I was trying to figure out how to wrap my arms around 50 years of rock. So what I decided, the easiest thing seemed to be if you would break it up by their lead guitar players. Because you got your Brian Jones era, you've got your Mick Taylor era, and then you've got your Ron Wood era, which continues to this day. And aside from a little bit of overlap, these three different eras are pretty distinct. So we're going to talk about Brian Jones. Brian founded the Stones, named the Stones, in 1962, and he was in the Stones until his death in 1969. He was a disciple of Elmore James. He fathered at least a half dozen children with various women. He played a wide variety of instruments in Rolling Stones recordings and in concerts. Rhythm and lead guitar, slide guitar, upright bass, sitar, dulcimer, keyboards, mellotron, marimba, harmonica, wood instruments, wind instruments, the saxophone, drums, the recorder, and who knows what else. Patti Smith said something about Brian being a peacock who brought color to the band. I could not find the actual quote, but she worshipped him. So did the little girls. The Brian Jones years of live performances were out of control. It seemed like every show would end with a riot. And the stones you shall have, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me great pleasure to present the fantastic, fabulous, Rolling Stones. You have that, Billy Wyman. All right, Keith Richards, Bob Jones, Charlie Watts, and Mick Jagger. To my thumb, there's a girl began as a straight-up British blues act who played covers, but their manager, Andrew Luke Oldman, steered Jones and his fellow band members Mick Jagger and Keith Richards to take over the band's musical direction and become songwriters in the Lennon-McCartney tradition. But Brian would usually provide key, highly recognizable instrumentation that made the songs complete, but he wouldn't actually write the songs. He would add novel instrumentation that never failed to complement the Jagger-Richards compositions. And it's been said that he could master any instrument within minutes of noodling around on it. He played on 11 studio albums. England's newest hitmakers, 12 by 5, The Rolling Stones No. 2, Now, Out of Our Heads, Aftermath, Between the Buttons, Their Satanic Majesty's Request, Beggar's Banquet, and a little bit on Let It Bleed. And all of these are great albums except for maybe Satanic Majesty's. I happen to like it despite its flaws, and we'll discuss it in a bit. But the Early Stones were really a singles band. The run of 45s released between February 1965 and February 1967 is impressive. Satisfaction, Get Off My Cloud, Tears Go By, Paint It Black, Mother's Little Helper, Let's Spend the Night Together, and Ruby Tuesday, all great songs. To me, the real story of the Stones starts with Aftermath from 1966. 1966, by the way, is the best single year for classic music as far as I'm concerned. But this is the beginning of a more pop and baroque pop era. Very singles-oriented, 
Aftermath is considered an artistic breakthrough for the Stones. It's the first to consist entirely of original Jagger Richards compositions, and Brian emerged as a talented multi-instrumentalist. But at this point, Keith Richards would become the primary guitarist, and Brian focusing on more exotic instrumentation. My sweet Lady Jane When I see you again Your servant am I And will humbly remain Just heed this plea, my love On bended knees, my love I pledge myself to Lady Jane My dear Lady Anne I've done what I can I must take my leave For promised I am This play is run, my love Your time has come, my love I pledge my troth to Lady Jane. This is a somber record that would find critics saying that the Stones were misogynistic. Titles like Stupid Girl didn't help. Yet Lady Jane, Under My Thumb, etc. The US version begins with Paint It Black, and that's a great example of Brian Jones' importance to the Stones. What would that song be like without the sitar that drives the main riff? Check out Under My Thumb and imagine what it would have sounded like without that marimba. As far as I'm concerned, Jones should have been given credit as a songwriter on, the, on tracks like these. It might have changed the outcome of his story. Speaking of Between the Buttons, it would be the last album produced by Andrew Luke Oldman who had at this point acted as the band's manager and produced all their prior records. This album's most interesting tracks are the non-singles. Why do my thoughts bloom so large on me? They seem to stay for day after day And won't disappear, I've tried every way But she smiles sweetly she smiles sweetly She smiles sweetly And says don't worry Oh no, no, no Where does she hide it inside of her? Keeps her peace most every day And won't disappear, my hair's turning gray But she smiles sweetly She smiles sweetly She smiles sweetly And says don't worry
what she said so softly I understood for once in my life And feeling good most all of the time Cause she smiled sweetly She smiled sweetly She smiled sweetly And said don't worry used to great effect in the Royal Tenenbaums film in 2001. And all the albums up to and including this one were recorded on just four tracks, and Brian did not contribute any electric guitar to this record. Apparently with this album, the tension between the band and Brian was just beginning. On the next album, a compilation called Flowers, the cover showed each band member's head with flower stems beneath them, and it's no accident that Brian's is the only one without leaves. Things get really interesting after that. They start their Satanic Majesty's request was a real head-scratcher and could have been the end of the Stones. Just prior to that, they released We Love You, which was sort of a signal as to where they're going. Uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney sing back up on that. And I really like the tune. It's pretty cool. It was written in response to their many legal difficulties with drugs. As far as Satanic Majesties, I've read conflicting reports of Brian's interest in the record. According to Brian's ex-girlfriend, Anita Pollenberg, Brian hated it. He hated this direction. What we do know now is that the record was the group's naked attempt to create an answer to the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album. We also know that Bill Wyman, the bassist, felt this was a bad idea. We do know that the critics and the public were generally in agreement that this was no Rolling Stones record. I love psychedelic music, but most people see this as a bit of a stain on their early catalog. Still, there's some cool tracks, like 2000 Man, later covered by Kiss as sang by Space Ace. Well, my name is She's a Rainbow, they pulled that out of the bag recently on tour. The Citadel's a pretty cool song. And 2000 Light Years From Home. If the album had opened with this, it might have been better received. And the Mellotron played by Brian on this track is awesome.
The album featured strings by John Paul Jones, not yet in Led Zeppelin, some backing vocals by the Small Faces. It was self-produced, and the recording process was a hot mess. There were rarely more than three-fifths of the band on hand for the sessions, and recording was interrupted by the drug bust of Keith, Mick, and Brian. Brian was turning to drugs and drink more frequently, and his path to self-destruction was evident. Now, I mentioned Anita Pollenberg, Jones' girlfriend of two years. She left him for Keith Richards when Jones was hospitalized during a trip the three made to Morocco. Jones' penchant for excess had been exacerbated by his intense romantic affair with this Italian-born actress-model sexpot bombshell. Anita Pallenberg has been described as powerful, brilliant, and absolutely mad, often in the same breath. Jones and Anita together were known to overindulge in narcotics and sex, and often their relationship would delve into a dark sadomasochism and the occult. She would eventually pay a hefty price for being a rock star girlfriend. But that's a different story. The album had a costly 3D lenticular image on the front cover, and Keith Richards said the album was a load of crap. In 1968, they released Beggar's Banquet, and the negative reaction to Satanic Majesties gave the band a kick in the ass, and they decided to get back to basics. The single prior to the album was Jumpin' Jack Flash, and it may well be the definitive Stones track. You can't deny the groove and the attitude. Cool video, too. Beggar's Banquet is the first in a series of amazing albums. Dare I say that no one has had a stronger five albums in a row, ever. Its release marks the beginning of the most critically acclaimed time period of the Rolling Stones' career. Name me a band with a stronger string of albums back-to-back. You got Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Get Your Yaya's Out, Sticky Fingers, Hot Rocks, Exile on Main Street, Goat's Head Soup, All Killer. And it's no coincidence that the band made these albums with producer Jimmy Miller. He's the perfect band producer. It's a match that bore fruit for about five years, and every single track of Beggar's Banquet is a classic. But this was where Brian really started to decline, and according to the band, the last contribution he made of any significance was no expectations. But what a contribution. Keith and I took drugs, but Brian took too many drugs of the wrong kind, and he wasn't functioning as a musician. I don't think he was that interested in contributing to the Rolling Stones anymore. He certainly didn't know if he was going to turn up and what state he was going to be, and then what was he going to be able to do in that state? What could, job could you give him? There's a movie called One Plus One, which shows the band working in the studio on the song Sympathy for the Devil from its earliest gestation to the finished product. And you can see Brian going downhill in the video. By the end, his eyes look like they're about to fall out of his sockets. Let me, let me 
puzzling you It's the nature of my game So when Let It Bleed was recorded in 69, most of the sessions, Brian was either absent or so incapacitated he was unable to contribute anything meaningfully. Ry Cooter was brought in to play Love in Vain, which would have certainly been played by Brian in better days. band could not tour with his arrests and his behavior. They wouldn't have never been able to come to America. I followed her to the station With a suitcase in my hand Yeah, I followed her to the station With a suitcase in my hand Taylor joined the band about this time. There's a little overlap with the Brian years, but Mick will get his own show soon. The group filmed and held a concert called the Rock and Roll Circus. That had acts like Taj Mahal, Marianne Faithful. Uh, there was a super group called the Dirty Mac with uh, John Lennon, Eric Clapton, Mitch Mitchell, and Keith Richards. And the Stones, of course, were blown off the stage by The Who. And this was Brian Jones' last public appearance. They played Jumpin' Jack Flash, Parachute Woman, No Expectations, You Can't Always Get What You Want, Sympathy for the Devil, and Salt of the Earth. The film was shelved for many, many years because it was quite evident that The Who took over. And they finally released it in 1996. You can see clips of it on YouTube. I highly recommend it. Very cool, very interesting. Little time capsule. And this is the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. John, I want to talk to you about your new group, the uh, Dirty Mag. My mother was of the sky, my father was of the earth, but I am of the universe, and you know what it's worth. Now. Tell me, baby, what's my name? But in June 1969, the Stones asked Jones to leave. Guitarist Mick Taylor took his place in the group, and Brian Jones died less than a month later drowning in a swimming pool at his home while under the influence of alcohol and drugs. The home was famously owned by A.A. Milne, who wrote Winnie the Pooh. But there's a lot of conspiracy about what happened. 
Years later, it came out, or at least it's been reported, that um, Brian was murdered by a caretaker named Frank Thorogood, who had been bullied and had enough of his shit, according to the story. There's a movie called Stoned, which came out in 2005. It kind of tells the story from that point of view. In the early hours of this morning, Brian Jones, guitarist with the Rolling Stones, was found dead in his swimming pool in the grounds of his home. We were supposed to be looking after him, Frank. What the hell happened here? People think I'm a druggie, but I'm not anymore. Look at yourself. You can't handle the drugs. My band say I'm a liability. Brian, it's not just his funeral. Cheers, Frank. Cheers, Mr. Jones. So is Frank taking Brian Jones for a bit of a ride, then? Skimming off? Is that the expression? Jones is no longer willing to finance your shenanigans. Your stupid games could ruin both of us, Frank. So Brian died right before the Stones were to play their first show with Mick Taylor at Hyde Park. And before the set, Mick Jagger read excerpts from Adonis, a poem by Percy Shelley. Okay, now listen. Now will you just cool it just for a minute? Because I really would like to say something for Brian. And I'd really dig it if you would be with us when I... Well, what I'm going to say, I really, I really don't know how to do this sort of thing, but I'm going to try. And I hope you can just, just cool it, just before we start. And I really hope, if you do, I really appreciate it. If you could just say a few words what I think I feel about Brian, and I'm sure you do, and what we feel about him just going when we didn't expect him to, okay? Okay, are you going to be quiet or not? Okay. I used to say something that was written by Shelley, and I think it goes with what happened to Brian. Peace. Peace. He is not dead. He does not sleep. He has awakened from the dreams of life. It's we that are lost in stormy visions and keep with phantoms an unprofitable strife. And in a mad trance, we strike with a spirit's knife, invulnerable nothing. We decay like corpses in the charnel. Fear and grief convulse us and consume us day by day. And cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay. The one remains, the many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines. Earth's shadows fly. Life, like a dome of many-coloured glass, stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. Die, and if thou wouldst be with that which thou dost seek, follow where all is fled. Townsend wrote a short poem called A Normal Day for Brian, A Man Who Died Every Day. It goes, I used to play my guitar as a kid, wishing I could be like him, but today I changed my mind. I decided I don't want to die. But it was a normal day for Brian. Rock and roll's that way. It was a normal day for him, a man who died every day. You know, the last few years of his life, I felt even sorrier for him for what we did to him then. 
we took is, is one thing away, which is being in a band. I, that's my opinion. So Brian Jones was often the hard-living figurehead for the Rolling Stones. His good looks and his love of the blues was a key factor in the image of the group. The fact that he died at 27, followed shortly after by Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix, would cement his legend. And there are a lot of people who believe the Stones' claim to greatness ended with Jones' departure, but I don't think so. I mean, if you've listened to Exile on Main Street, you would strongly disagree. However, Brian's influence and contribution to the group cannot be expressed enough. They would have never happened without him. We were working in the studio with Jimmy Miller. And someone came in and said, Brian's just died. Everybody just looked at each other and go, finally. It was almost like it was bound to happen one way or another. You just have that feeling that they're not going to be, they're not going to be 70 years old ever, you know. They're, not everybody makes it, you know. Produced by Donnie Shattuck.